The Three Guys Podcast. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the greatest show on earth. And welcome to another episode of the Three Guys Podcast. Today, you are joined by the brother, Dee Petrillos. Welcome, Derek. Yes, welcome. Brian is traveling for work in Sin City. So tonight, Derek, you got on, uh, you know, dive into this and then uh, just a little bit about our guest tonight. Um, And then we can talk some. Halloween movies. Uh, yeah. So our guest tonight is John Minigan. He's a playwright. Um, John Minigan is a recent Massachusetts Cultural Council Artist Fellow in Dramatic Writing in New Repertory Theater Playwriting Fellow. His solo adaptation of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow premiered at Greater Boston Stage Company in 2022 and will have its West Coast premiere in 2023. His Queen of Sad and Mischance won the 2022 Judith Roy Award from Kennedy Center. And his Noir Hamlet was an Edge Media Best of Theater 2018 and a 2019 Elliot Nord- Norton Outstanding New Script nominee. Um, he has developed new work with Urban Stages, Orlando Shakespeare Theater, Portland Stage Company, Utah Shakespearean Festival, and the Great Plains Theater Conference. And his work is one of the best American short plays, best 10 minute short plays, and other anthologies. John is an affiliate faculty in theater education at Emerson College, Massachusetts, and serves as dramatist, guild ambassador for, dramatist, sorry, I shouldn't know that, dramatist, (laughs) guild ambassador for the Boston area. You can find John on his website at johnminigan.com, and that's M-I-N-I-G-A-N, first name is John, J-O-H-N-M-I-N-I-G-A-N.com. And he had a recent, Derek, just so you know, recent show that he had wrote um, as a playwright called The Tall Tales at Blackburn Tavern um, in Massachusetts at the Gloucester Stage. Did you know there was a Gloucester Stage there? I did not, but that doesn't tell you much anyways, because I really don't know much much about anything, but (laughs) I didn't know that. So, no, but it's also tying into our Halloween theme this month. We've actually going to have two type of, well, I'd say two almost episodes tied into Halloween, um, which is which is cool. You know, mm-hmm. we can't uh, make this into a Halloween month. Uh, we had Tom on, Spidalori, last week from the uh, Essex County Ghost Project, which was um, interesting and very, uh, Tom's very passionate. So um, we're turning up Halloween and doing another episode again. We can always, like, all be, want to be, Tom and how the passion that he has, and like you can tell the excitement that he has, and uh, yeah, doing what he does, like it's that's passion, that's passion right there. To do that, you know, what I'm saying you you know someone is very likes what they do. Not many people can say that. No, and he's involved in like not just that, like all the different things that he's involved with is just you uh, can all hope to have that feeling. Uh, so, but, you know, I guess to clear up some confusion, I think we, not some confusion, but some discussion topics of Halloween 3. <laughs> Do we like it, not like it? I don't know. I texted you the other night about it. Oh, here we go. The, the whole thing. <laughs> it's the, it, just, it just goes off. I mean, I don't understand where they were going with that, why they decided to go down that direction. But the more and more I watch it, I mean, it does, it's entertaining. 
but it just yeah. takes and they still keep the music from from the original Halloween, you know, with Michael Myers coming around the corner. They still have the music. So and all of a sudden, what's her name is back alive. Yeah, I know. You said it was growing on you. Then I was like, oh, you know, shit, let me just let me start watching it. <laughs> and then I saw the part when she has like that little it's the uh, lady. She has the, the little gadget in the hand. Next thing, yeah. you know, her face gets fried. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it's just it's a different I mean, it goes down a different road. And it's just I don't know. It's eerie. It's eerie in some way, but it's still I mean, it's not, you know, I'm not going to obviously it's still ranked as not anywhere close to the other Halloween movies. Not, yeah, no, 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 not even close. Oh, though uh, the most recent ones have been terrible. To, and then, um, but then there's like the part they're running out, him and the, 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 the girls running out, and then like there's all those like creepy guys just kind of like, and yeah, she's just like, just yeah, it's line. just, it's just weird. The whole, the town is like, you know, it's just they run by these people, individuals. It's that song too. I know, I know, it's crazy. <laughs> um, yeah, but how about the, the other thing too? I think that, that the, the cool thing was obviously with social media, you get all these like Brian's oh. favorite, the memes and videos. And then oh you, yeah. Uh, well, the, the first one was the the little uh, Mikey Myers from across the street. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I never noticed that too. Like in that video, that that window, that Michael Myers at the end. Like you yeah, see I think it's stairs. the lightning. It's the lightning when it flashes. You see him out there. Yeah, it's like that last piece when she like. She's like little Mikey Mike from across the street. Yeah, and, and I'm looking at him. I'm like, after I sent you the the YouTube, I'm like, wait a second, I can see him in the background. Yeah. So that so Wikipedia for I want to look this up. So Halloween three season of the witch was made in 1982. Um. So it's obviously as we know, Halloween three is the only entry in the series that does not feature the series antagonist Michael Myers. Um, after the film, or, or is he just call me known as the sheep? Yes, yes, true. Um, after the film's disappointing reception and box office performance, Michael Myers was brought back six years later in Halloween for the return of Michael Myers. The film departs from the slasher genre of the other installments, instead featuring a witchcraft theme with science fiction aspects. Uh, John Carpenter and Deborah Hill believe that the Halloween series could have been an anthology series of films that centered around Halloween night, with each sequel containing its own characters, setting, and storyline. Uh, director Wallace stated that there were many ideas for Halloween themes films, some of which could have potentially created any number of their own sequels, and that season of which was meant to be the first. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, not... I, I don't know why the thought process was in that that they thought that, um, going away from the Michael Myers theme. I mean, I understand if you watch the end of I hope there's no spoil alerts for individuals who've never seen the Halloweens that. <laughs> I'm sorry at this point in time, but I mean, Halloween too, when he, you know, he burns to a crisp and um, maybe they thought they could continue the franchise, but I don't know. It's just, it's just a weird entry into the, uh, to the Halloween series. Yeah. We might be saving them sometime by giving them a lot. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. see I, my, I didn't take on like when we were kids growing up, the, Friday the 13th was the one with, with the Jasons. Those are the ones that I was hooked on. It wasn't in, maybe it was you or whoever it was, but like I didn't get hooked on to Halloween's, like the Michael Myers things until like I was a little bit older. Well, you know what the problem is? The the Jasons, they they took right off with the, the way they, see, I really have something that's scary. I, you know, that's why I like to watch the old monster movies 
from back in the day, like you know the th- yeah. the, the original yeah. thing or anything like that. It's just it's, it's I don't need to see that much violence and gore. It's just it does, it just ruins the. It's not yeah, scary so, anymore. It's just like well, I'm more just turning my head because I'm disgusted seeing stuff that I see. Yeah, some of the things now like saws and things like that. It's it's not. But the original saw was fine because they didn't it didn't get crazy. And then they started taking it to the next level. Even the original Friday Thirteenth, I thought they were scary. And then they started just really getting really off the charts. I mean, I'm, I'm someone. Someone sent me the other day. I think it was Brian. Sent me a TikTok. Of the video is like someone's like, "Oh, someone's angry walking through," and it's a picture of Jason walking through New York City, throwing people around. It's oh yeah, like, well, he, yeah. It's just like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, then now he's up in space, and there's other things. It's like you know, I mean, that's stupid as it is. But then the violence and gore just got out of control. And I, like I, like I've said to, I would watch a movie, a horror movie, which is actually horror. We are scared, and that's why I think the the Halloween's. You do see it, but you don't. It doesn't get. I mean, as they got further down the road, they did get a little bit more gory. But um, that's what was key to it. That's why I really wasn't a big fan of when the Rob Zombies come out because he just he, he just took what was scary and made it just gory. Yeah, yeah. I don't really. What what was um Halloween's? Which one was like your your favorite? Um, probably Halloween. I would say the original Halloween. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, you know, the original Halloween, then Halloween 2. Yeah. Because they were, yeah, you know, Halloween 2 is great, but, you know, the original Halloween tells you his origins and stuff like that. You know, when you fast forward, I don't know why Halloween 6, I thought, was the curse of Michael Myers. I thought it was, I don't know, maybe because they got back to what he, he had for the mask. I thought it was pretty cool. Well, the guest is here. I'm going to let him in. Well, John, welcome to the Three Guys podcast. We really appreciate you taking time. I know you were traveling last week, and uh, hopefully you had a, were you was it traveling for fun? I hope uh, mostly for fun. Yeah, yeah. My wife is from uh, Saint Croix in the Virgin Islands, so uh, and she had her mid semester break from teaching, so we went down for ten days. Uh, it was good. Excellent. Excellent. A little crazy coming back. We had to go through an airport that suddenly had no internet access. Uh, so oh really? We had to process every passenger's passport and any baggage fees, etc. Like on the phone. Okay, the person's passport number is. Oh my god! It took. Two and a half hours, two hours to get everybody checked in. <laughs> uh, it's already a horror show going through airports. Now you add that misery on top of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's crazy. And the customs was also down. So uh, they basically just asked a couple questions and said, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. You're fine. Because <laughs> they couldn't do anything. <laughs> well, was the weather warm at least? Uh, a little too warm. It was very hot down there. It was like mid-90s, no breeze, high humidity. Really? Uh the last couple of days especially were, were rough. It was a big, big uh, temperature shock getting back. Oh, I'm sure it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, John, we did your introduction beforehand, before you came on. Oh, uh, huh? My brother was able to read everything, and um, we dug a little deeper into you know what you do. Um, but I think what we start off with is basically you know where you grew up and how you got involved uh, eventually down the road is, is in Playwright. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, I grew up in the North Shore of Massachusetts, uh, not too far from Gloucester, uh, where uh, Tall Tales was set. Um, and I lived there until college, went to college in Worcester, and mostly was writing poetry to start off and a little bit of fiction. Uh, and I was teaching math right out of college. And the guy that was running the drama program said, hey, you want to help out? And I said, I, I like going to plays. Sure, why not? Uh, and almost immediately I realized, oh, wait, this is what I should be doing. I should, I should drop the poetry. I should drop the short stories and the novel, and I should be working on writing plays. Um, 
And I've been doing that more or less ever since. I mean, I did teach, uh, ran a high school theater program for a little over 30 years uh, and wrote a little bit during that time when I could uh, and have been writing pretty steadily since I retired about five years ago. Nice. Did you, John, did you have, um, as a kid like growing up, did you have any uh, background with like theater or in, like, or did you, and also on the other, I guess the flip end, like the writing part of it, did you feel like, hey, like the writing is where you wanted to go? Yeah, I mean, I did start writing. <laughs> I know I wrote a short story that I think was mostly plagiarized in fifth grade. <laughs> just, you know, read a good story, said I can write like that. Oh, why don't I just write that? Uh, <laughs> uh, so Brings me back to my start. days in school. Yeah. <laughs> everybody has. Thankfully, to I don't need to discuss that again. Right. right. <laughs> uh, so I was writing as far back as that, uh, and it always felt like this is something that I want to be part of my life, but I just wasn't sure how it was going to work out. Right. Right. And then the acting part of it, did you ever have any like, um, you know, interest in any of that? Like, I mean, movies and you said plays. I, like... I, I mean, <laughs> so very briefly, my one film role, uh, <laughs> there was a guy who was living in Worcester and there was a guy who was making a movie that was going to be called Invasion of the Pie People. And the goal was it was going to be <laughs> like a science fiction B movie, like, you know, uh, plan nine from outer space kind of thing. And he was shooting it with Roger Corman's equipment and his cinematographer, oh, wow. the guy that did like the original little shop. Uh, and it was this crazy movie. It was the idea that, that, you know, uh, aliens had come to earth and were turning people into zombies by hitting them in the face with whipped cream pies. Uh, <laughs> And my character played an international, the head of an international center for wastewater treatment, Dr. Ross Ewage. Uh, and I discovered that uh, carbonation was the way to solve it. So then you had to run around with seltzer and seltzer all the zombies and then come back to, to normal. Uh, unfortunately, the movie before it wrapped filming, uh, somebody broke into the guy's car and stole all the equipment and all the film. Wow. So They, did, they didn't want you to. They didn't want you to put that movie out. Yeah, they don't. Nope, not at all. Not at all. They they stopped your like your uh, you know Academy Award like. That's the know. end yeah. of my film career right there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. My God, that would have been that would have been fantastic. I would have loved to yeah. see that pie and thing. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it was a lot of fun to work on. Oh, I can um, imagine. But I, I think a lot of people have been and... attracted to it because it was pie too. They've been like, "Wow, I could see pie oh, yeah. people." Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so I did some acting in graduate school and a little bit for a year or so after that, but uh, then writing really became the focus for me. Gotcha. But when'd you go to, um, to college and graduate uh, school? Un undergrad, I went to Clark and got a double major in math and English and then uh, taught for taught math for three years and then went to Smith College for a master's in theater with a focus in playwriting. Which was very confusing to most of the undergrads because they didn't know that the grad school was co-ed, so they could not figure out what was this guy doing here. So, I saw that you went to you went to school in the UK too. Yeah, I went for a year to the University of Sussex, junior year abroad, and did some uh, some philosophy, some English classes, uh, some. It's weird to think about it now, but some artificial intelligence classes, uh, more from the philosophy side than the the computing side. Um, but a little bit of computing side also. Yeah. So it's funny. We were discussing about Gloucester. I had no idea that they had a stage. But I mean, there was I. This was news to me that you know when I when I reached out and we were, we were, t we were talking through email and I said, my God, I, you know, my brother didn't know that either. I think that's it's amazing because you hear North Shore Music Theater and other places, but I never knew Gloucester. Right, right. North Shore was probably the first place uh, 
the music the music tent when it was the tent uh the first place that i ever went to shows uh was there um but yeah gloucester stage has been around since the late 70s 79 i think it was founded and it was originally at the blackburn tavern because there wasn't a space so folks would move in they'd move tables and chairs out of the way and put on plays by pinter and beckett and you know then move the tables and chairs back have a drink and call it a night uh, so that was one of the ideas that the theater had was to call the piece Tall Tales from Blackburn Tavern to include that part of Gloucester history as well. And what's the um, behind the, the, the Blackburn Tavern? Like, is there any um, historical thing other than the tavern part of it that I... Um... Yeah, the uh, one of the characters that I did not include in the play, but is probably deserves a play of his own, uh, was the founder of the Blackburn Tavern, who was an amazing character. Uh, he, uh, I'm going to get all these details wrong because I like I read about him and did a little research and then said, no, it's not going to be in this one. So uh, my apologies for anybody in the Blackburn family who, who hears this the wrong way. Uh, but he, like, for example, he got caught at sea uh, during a storm um, that he was rowing and he ended up with severe frostbite and lost all of his fingers, but still maintained like, but this is what I'm going to do. So even after he had had a long recuperation from that, uh, he was still determined, I'm gonna keep rowing boats, you know, even though he didn't have hands to fingers to grab onto the oars with. Um, but he also founded the tavern. Um, yeah, I don't think people realize, well, I mean, we, we live in this area, but anyone else who's listening that this area, it just goes back so far. I mean, in the, the New England area, the, the Massachusetts, so the history of everything, and, and you can only imagine the history that you can share about these, we just had someone on last week. He is um, was talking about a cemetery that was located in Haverhill that has soldiers that were fought in the Civil War. Let's go back to 1859, which was very interesting. But I can imagine you can touch on a lot around Gloucester in that time frame with pirates and whatnot because of the oh, history yeah. of the area. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the pieces that ended up as part of the play go, well, the stuff that, that once Gloucester became Gloucester, uh, I think the earliest stories in the in the piece were around the 1630s, um, but you know there were there were indigenous folks that lived there for you know thousands of years. Uh, some of those stories also made it into the into the piece. So how did you? Yeah, I was gonna say how did you end up getting into with, with involved with Gloucester? Would you start off somewhere in you know different locations and then work your way to Gloucester? Or? No, they they approached the theater approached me and commissioned the play and said that they were specifically interested in, you know, because it was the commemoration of 400 years plus uh, that they wanted to participate that in that citywide event. Um, and they wanted to do it by having a play that would close their season. And they had seen um, uh, Paula Plum, who is the interim artistic director, and then Chris Griffith had seen a play that I had done a year ago, uh, an adaptation of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow that was done in Stoneham. And they liked what they saw and they liked the combination of like, it's scary, but it's also funny. And that's kind of the mood that they wanted for this piece. So they contacted me back in December. And then by January, we were sort of in business and making the play happen. And it just played this past September, right? It yeah, it basically the month of September, September 1st to 24th. So the, the writing process was, uh, you know, I started researching as soon as they asked me about it because I wanted to see, you know, is this a play I feel like I can write? Um, and so I wrote through July and then we rehearsed the month of August and then they performed the month of September. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a writing part of it. Like, I, I'm just always amazed at anyone between playwrights, books, things like that, and 
um, so I'm glad you brought the researching process up. Like, what is for your process, John? Like, something like that. Like, how do you start? Like, if you're a writer, like, how, how do you take your steps to get to where you um, want to go? Because I mean, typically these things too, right? As a playwright, probably take sometimes they take a couple of years or maybe even more, right? Right. You're under the gun to do it in what a couple months, essentially. Three months, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and that was a concern that they had at the theater. And it was a concern that I had. Um, I mean, the first full length play that I had a professional production of the professional production was in 2014, started writing the play in 1999. So wow. yeah, it can take 15 years uh, for it to happen. And in this case, it was going to be six months or eight months. Um, so I, you know, when they first suggested it to me, I think my first response was panic. <laughs> I don't really, like, I know Gloucester, I grew up in Beverly. I grew up hiking when I was in high school through Dogtown. We used to go to Hammond Castle and go to organ concerts as a family. So I familiarity with the area and been to the beaches and all that. Um, but I didn't really know a lot of the lore. So I knew it was going to be a, a heavy lift at the beginning with a couple of months of pure research. Um, so that was panicky. Uh, but I've also learned that like when I panic about something, that's probably a good sign I should dive in because I'm going to find something that I wouldn't have expected. Um, so yeah, I, I researched probably for about two months before I ever wrote anything down and I made notes, but I didn't write any dialogue and hadn't come up with characters. And then one day I said, I just, I just need to start. Uh, and so I started with a conversation between these two characters, uh, Amos Story and Susan Story, husband and wife, who saw a sea serpent on Ten Pound Island in Gloucester Harbor. Uh, and I just wrote it, wrote their conversation. As she sees it, he comes out, and they argue about it. And you know, what is it? What is it we're seeing? And then suddenly the thing starts to move. And like, oh, let's forget about this little domestic dispute. This is this is wonder. This is awe. This is amazing. This thing that we're seeing. So that helped once I said, oh, it's just, it's people talking to each other. That's a play. I can do that <laughs> rather than like this mountain of research. So I, when I reached out to test, I, you know, we talked about Gloucester. Mm -hmm. You want to tell the listeners who don't live in the area a little bit about Gloucester, which you know, um, yeah. and why you wanted to get involved. I mean, for Gloucester, because I think people don't realize that, like a hidden gem with Gloucester. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful town. Uh, my brother lives there. He's lived there since about 2008. Um, and Gloucester Stage in particular is is a theater that, you know, most of my playwright friends are like, I'd love to get a play done at Gloucester Stage. I'd love to get a play done there because it has a national reputation. Um, so part of what drew me was just the opportunity to, to work at Gloucester Stage, but also to, you know, I live in Framingham, Mass now, so I'm not that close to the North Shore, but it's close enough that I can get there. And I said, oh, I can, I can be there. I can walk through Dogtown. I can go to the sites that I'm writing about. So that's going to be an exciting part of the project to make it really site specific about, you know, uh, about the place. Um, so that was what, those are the two things that drew me, the attraction of the stage itself and a chance to kind of reacquaint myself with an area that I visited a lot, as I said, when I was a kid, but haven't been to, haven't spent a lot of time up there. Now, how big is um, Gloucester Stage in terms of seating capacity? Oh man, uh, I think it's a little under 200. It's like 150 to 200. Uh, and it's an interesting setup because it's it's uh, what they call a thrust stage. So there's audience on three sides. Although the play just before mine, they did a play called The Ding Dongs by Brenda Withers and they set it up uh, arena stage, like in the round uh, for that one. But normally it's, it's three sides and then a set in the back. And the interesting thing about writing in that space, it, the first time I went up and really walked through it, as I started the writing process to realize the harbor is right behind it. 
Oh, wow. Ending the play with the sea serpent and the fact that if there's a sea serpent, you know, we know where she is. Like she's right yeah. back there behind that wall. Uh, and that became kind of what led to the end of the play, the, the, the return of the sea serpent at the very end. Oh, that's cool. Are they, are, they, are they seasonal or is it something where they run all year? Yeah, they're mostly, their main producing season is June through September. Uh, so this year, for example, they did four shows in June, July, and August and September. But then they have other events. They're doing a lot of events now to sort of commemorate the 400 plus commemoration. Um, they're also doing, uh, I know, the Friday night, I think, before Halloween, they're doing uh, some scary Gloucester stories from Gloucester writers. They're just going to do like moth style, I guess, uh, telling stories. And they do film festivals and and that kind of thing. and and you know, family film nights and, and that sort of thing. So the good thing is when they, they, they're going through the summer months, if you're going down there to take in a show, mm -hmm. you can take in some of the great restaurants down there as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We, we uh, <laughs> uh, did a lot of takeout. My wife and I, when we went up to the performances, we would go and we'd see a show and we'd either grab something beforehand and go find a nice spot in the water to have it uh, or pick up something if we went to a matinee and take it home. So. How does it when you, when you hear like some of your uh, decks slow down here? We, we like to have fun. John, my brother gets this. So. Well, you know what? His Brett takes over the whole thing. He starts with the questions. He's got like ten of them, hundred of them lined up over here. The hot like for for people. So when you hear people speak um, your words on stage, like how, how does that like is the feeling like it was the first day that you you, you heard it? Uh that's, that's such a loaded question for a couple of I know. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, see, see, you uh, wanted to jump in and take my question away. See what happens? <laughs> so, so it's exciting. I mean, it's really exciting. And it's a it's a little scary because, you know, sometimes it, it does not sound at all like you thought it was going to sound. I know that when, uh, like I talked about the adaptation of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, I wrote a year ago. And I wrote it for a specific actor who asked me to, to write an adaptation because he wanted to play Ichabod Crane, a great actor, Paul Melendi, who I've worked with a bunch. And so I wrote a first draft and we, you know, got together on Zoom to read through it. And I realized like, oh, this doesn't sound like I thought it was going to sound. And, you know, there's the way that the book is written or the story is written. There's the way that Paul can make language come alive. And I got to find the the meeting point between the two. So there was a lot of that. Um, mm -hmm. the, the piece that the final performance of this play, I think we called it draft 4.1 F <laughs> that draft four was the draft we went into rehearsal with. And then like, Oh no, 4.1, we got to change these things around and then tweaks a, B, C, D, E, and F till we finally got to uh, something that felt right. One of the things that was fun was, uh, you know, theaters always have a before the curtain speech, the managing director, the artistic director comes out and says stuff. And the way this play was structured, that we wanted people to feel like they were in the tavern and the, the bar manager, bartender, she's the first person who comes out and talks to us. So we wanted all of that stuff to be like, that's the first encounter that the audience has. So they gave me all that stuff. And then I spent, you know, a couple of hours, I went and rewrote. So it sounds like that character, since by that point in the rehearsal process, she had found the rhythm of the character. We knew what she was going to sound like and what her attitude was. Um, so that's really fun when you can get to that place with like, there's what you wrote, there's what the actor is really good at and to find the meeting place in the middle. Um, and that, that's a blast. And that was particularly fun with this group of actors and this director, Bryn Boyce, who is really good at making that magic happen. Yeah, I can imagine. I can even you just kind of describe it. You can almost picture it in your head. Yeah, yeah. And she was also, the director was also really good at taking four actors who had 
pretty much never worked together before. Two of them had worked together a little bit. Uh, and the show is, I mean, <laughs> she described it as a machine that all four actors are constantly busy. They're either narrating or they're in character or they're doing a costume change live in front of the audience by adding a piece or they're going behind the set and operating this puppetry that, that was part of the storytelling. So they were, and singing and playing the accordion and like all kinds of stuff. So uh, she was very good, Bryn Boyce, at figuring out how to make these four really different people work together as an ensemble based on what's the strength of this person? What's the strength of this person? And how can those strengths pull together? That the three bar that, that three <laughs> there I'll start with question again. The three oh, bosses. I told, I just I told to my you. brother before this. I wasn't gonna get into this, but <laughs> like I, I do uh like I act and like I've done um plays and stuff, but the one of the big first ones I did, my brother went to it was Bowen Bowen, but it had like the the three the box kind of the, the oh, two yeah. sides and then the front and it's definitely for like actors, it's you know, it's I remember the director going, hey, like, are you okay with this? And I'm like, yeah, figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and this, and Tall Tales of Blackburn Tavern was really interactive with the audience. There was, it was written, my opening stage direction said that there are parts of this that should feel like, and maybe just be totally improvisational based on what happens. Uh, and those are some of the best moments in the show uh, where actors would get involved and engage with an audience. Uh, sometimes it was scripted, sometimes like somebody, an actor would make a move and an audience member would respond and the actor would move again and the audience member would respond. Uh, there was another place where somebody's looking through a telescope. Um, uh, Dice Stevens was the actor in there. So they're looking through this telescope and trying to see something and somebody had left to go to the bathroom and then came back in. So they just followed and described like the, the sea serpent. <laughs> it, was Improvising. it was actually the son of another one of the actors in the show. So it was great like <laughs> to yeah. think that way. So, I, you know, I can't write, if, you know, unless I was plagiarizing most of it, because that's just, <laughs> I, I can't, there's no way. So I, I give you guys credit because there's no way I could do that. But what do you do if you get writer's block? How do you get over that? Uh, I think writer's block is, is an unwillingness to to make a decision. Uh, and I think when I'm faced with that, I just make a decision and accept that it's probably going to be a bad one, but at least it's going to unblock. Um, so do that, or uh, I make sure nobody has done the breakfast dishes and I go and do those because uh, yeah. <laughs> doing something totally different, going for a walk, doing the dishes, doing the dishes is particularly effective for me. Uh, it just unlocks a different part of the brain and suddenly you start to see solutions or possibilities you hadn't seen before. So, yeah, I mean, I, it, it's scary and it does happen, but I just try to say, okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to let it be bad. I'm just going to write something that's trash because I know I'm going to rewrite it eventually five times anyway. Mm. Yeah. So you said that Gloucester was nationally known, but what, yeah. what's so, what's so, what's the allure to, to Gloucester in that well, national think, yeah, yeah, I think part of it was the the founding. Israel Horowitz founded it back in the in the seventies, and um, yeah, nationally known playwright. Um, so I think the fact that he was associated with it uh, later, there was of course the scandal, which you may have heard about, that that he ended up having to leave. He was accused of of uh, inappropriate conduct uh, with some of the young women who were working there or appearing in shows. Um, but I think I think his name being associated with the theater in the beginning, you know, Gloucester is a relatively small town, but here's a big name guy who happens to live in Gloucester and who is 
also using the theater to tell Gloucester stories. So I think that was a, that's a piece of it. Um, but I was surprised because it is local, and you know, when uh, I'm a member of a bunch of online groups and you know listservs and so on, and people, whenever the name Gloucester Stage comes up, people are like, "Oh, are they accepting submissions right now? Can I get a reading there? Can I get a production there?" Uh, and I felt the same way. It was always sort of a, a theater that I dreamed about sometimes sometime having a production at and it had a reading of a play there in uh, the summer of 2021 and i figured well maybe that's as far as it goes so i was i was kind of stunned when i got the email from them and said hey would you like to collaborate on this piece would like to commission you um so <laughs> never necessarily expecting getting a production there let alone a commission was uh was, that was amazing awesome when you do um for some of the things that you develop in your soul, like maybe that may not be an adaptation and it's just your straight story. From a character perspective, what do you use, like, you know, obviously with acting, they say you kind of watch people. I mean, like you can get a lot of things from the people. A lot of your characters sometimes develop from like people you may have ran into um, throughout, you know, oh, your, yeah. your life. Absolutely. Uh, I don't think, I, I don't know if I've ever based a character specifically on a person, but a lot of my characters are kind of like amalgams of like, oh, these five aspects of these five different people I know if they were all combined into one character. Uh, so yeah, and that's, I mean, I think about that, that first professional production that we had. Um, it's a, it's a, it's called a two-hander. It's a two-character play. It's about a, an acting teacher and a student. And the student is based on things that I experienced, but also things that a good friend in grad school experienced. Uh, and there are things that she said to me that are lines in the play. <laughs> like if I don't, uh, if I'm not making it professionally in New York by the time I turn 35, law school, you know, and that's a thing that the character says. And I, that's, that's a mindset among a lot of actors. If I can't make it, well, you know, I've got speaking skills, I've got presence, I've got an ability to analyze things. So uh, I'm gonna apply that to law. And then the, the teacher, uh, has said a lot of things that, uh, things that I didn't want to hear as a student, but I heard as a student. Uh, and so he also says a lot of those things. Uh, but again, is, is like the first time I'd ever had a reading, one of my students came to it and said, Hey, he's a lot like you. I said, Oh crap. That's, <laughs> that's not what I want to be, <laughs> but I guess there are similarities. Um, I also sort of feel like every character you create is an aspect of your personality. Like you're speaking through uh, this character, something that you think or believe or want to believe or hope to have happen. Uh, yeah, that's kind of, it's, you know, development. It's kind of, I think, it's really cool because you can put that twist into those those characters and kind of see how people take that and, you know, develop that into, like you said, like their, their character. And what do they do with that? What do they do with your words? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, the, the patience that you have, like, the patience that you guys just for a write in, like uh, to me, I'm like one of these things where like, I, I have to do something real quick and get it done. So the patience mm -hmm. that you have as like a writer um, and to your point before, like you, you know, for um, this latest one that, you're like, okay, I'm under the gun here. I want to start right away, like holding yourself back and just kind of being okay. This could take two, three, four, five years. I, I don't know how people do that because I just want to see start. And I want to see the finish as quickly as possible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it is a long game for the most part. Uh, and it, it can be really frustrating. Uh, <laughs> that play that took 15 years to get on stage, I had a, there was a reading of it at Wellesley College as a fundraiser for a, a New York production that was happening. Um, and 
there was a talk back afterwards and a friend of mine who was in her 70s came to the talk back and said she she's uh, been writing all her life but has sort of shifted to playwriting more recently uh and somebody asked the question like so when did you start writing this play and this was in 20 19. Uh, I said, I started writing this play in 1999. And <laughs> so at that, at that point, it was 20 years ago. And she said, like, I don't have time for that. You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess not. Yeah. <laughs> so when you write, when, when you write a play, do you start off with a character or a setting or uh... it varies? Yeah, it varies a lot. Sometimes it's a relationship uh, between characters. Uh, and Often it's like a it's a general vague idea. Um, the a play that I've been spending a lot of time trying to get moved into a big production. It, it's the play of mine that has won the most awards and had the most recognition, and it hasn't made it on stage yet, even though it's it's three people, one room, easy to produce. Um, but it started with a situation that my daughter was involved in when she was between her junior and senior year in college and a, a summer job that she got working for a professor who was trying to write a book uh, as a research assistant. And some of the stuff that happened in their relationship got me really thinking about identity and the way you, you know, your life changes when you're that age, 20, 21 years old, and you're figuring yourself out. And then it started to reflect issues my wife had at the first university she was teaching at where she was really disrespected. Um, so those things sort of started bubbling and bubbling and bubbling. So I had a general situation and I didn't know where the play was. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know how it could happen. And one night I sat down to make some notes and suddenly just the first scene wrote itself uh, between the, the student and the professor. Um, so yeah, so sometimes it's a character, sometimes it's a situation, sometimes it's a general idea. Um, right now I'm, uh, I've got a little mini commission. I'm writing a solo play for an actor, director, producer, playwright, a friend who has produced a lot of my work and directed it. And she wanted a one woman show focused on Charles Dickens character, Miss Havisham from Great Expectations. So that was just, I'm still in the process. I think I've finally figured out like, well, what is the play? Like, what is this about that's different from Dickens and different from her and other solo shows she's done, et cetera. Um, so sometimes it evolves just through the process of writing and throwing stuff out and testing stuff out and seeing what people respond to and what you respond to as a writer. Like, oh, that's that's the meat of it. That's the heart of it. That's the piece, you know. You consult with anyone at all, like just to kind of pick brains and just kind of spot things or just more something like just for you to kind of go through your process. Yeah, my, my wife is an amazing sounding board. Uh, she will, <laughs> I know that play that I was writing about that's based on my daughter's experience. Uh, you know, my daughter, that 21 year, 20, 21 year old biracial woman, my wife is biracial. Uh, and so writing this character as, you know, middle-aged white guy, <laughs> like trying to get a sense of who this character is. And she would, I sitting on the couch with her several times and she would finish it. She, my wife would get to the last page. She would close the, the script and just look at me and shake her head no. <laughs> I was like, okay, I haven't found her yet. I haven't got her yet. Let me go back and work some more. Um, until finally that one day, it's like, I, I think you found her. I think you know who she is now. Um, so... <laughs> I've also worked with some great dramaturgs, uh, folks whose job it is to like look at new plays and figure out the nuts and bolts of what's working and what can work and what should happen. Uh, I was in a program at, uh, with that same play at New Repertory Theater in Watertown and Bridget O'Leary uh, ran the program 
And she was just really great at saying like, okay, I like what you're doing in act one in these four scenes. It should be five scenes. Take it back, make it five scenes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is like, I said, that's like taking your house that's three stories tall, taking it apart and using all the same parts to build a four story house. Like, I don't know how I'm going to do that. She's like, well, you can. And I did, and it was tough, but she was right. Like it, it worked much better uh, lining up the events of the that first act in five chunks rather than in four. So yeah, I, there. everybody in the world wants to rewrite your play, but when you find the people that are going to help you rewrite the play that you're trying to write, that's magic. That's great. Yeah. Imagine. So when you're when you're teaching, mm-hmm. what's the key? What's the key um, information you're giving to someone who's trying to learn to be to get into the field? Mm-hmm. Um, and because I mean, I, I I don't know how you can teach writing. I mean, it's really something that you either have or you don't. Like you have that, but I don't know what any guidance you'd give as a teacher. Yeah, I think um, one of the big ones is the and I don't know who originally said this but it's it's great which is write the play that only you can write um don't try to write somebody else's play who are you what are you going to bring to this that you know is true that you know is important and powerful um or a specific style or an approach uh like one of the things for the the gloucester play uh i <laughs> uh in the dark days of my youth i was in a punk band in worcester and wrote a lot <laughs> for it and performed uh and it occurred to me really early, like, oh, this is storytelling in a bar. There's got to be like a drinking song or a sea shanty or something like that. And that's got to become like a touchstone that keeps coming back over the course of the show. Uh, and then I was like, well, like, so I'm going to write a song. I'm going to write a song. <laughs> and again, it was one of those things like, this is the kind of thing I've done in the past. What can I do to bring this forward? Uh, and fortunately, my son is a much better composer and songwriter than I am. <laughs> so he was the guy that I went to, I, I sub commissioned him out of my commission. <laughs> so if I write the song, can you fix my mistakes? And he was like, Yeah, I can do that. <laughs> so <laughs> we worked together, sat at the piano, him with his guitar and worked through like melody lines and what's going to be hard for the singers and uh, how to think about rhythms differently and that kind of stuff. So yeah, so there are people to bounce those ideas off of. But that idea of writing the play that, that only you can write. Um, and i use an example. Um, a playwright in a group that I'm in, Donna Hoke, she's in Buffalo. Uh, one of the things she used to do, uh, she was the person who made the crosswords for Soap Opera Digest. Maybe she still does, oh. but she's a, a crossword puzzle maker. And she uh, she will do gift puzzles, like if you want somebody to make up a specific cost uh, crossword puzzle for your friend you can hire her and you know you give her all the information and she will come up with a crossword puzzle um so she has a at one point in the pandemic we were all saying we should write one person shows because they're going to be the shows that are going to be produced because they're going to be the safest uh, to rehearse and the safest for actors and audience so she wrote this amazing play called the crossword puzzle play or the crossword play uh, or Esmeralda's gift. Uh, and it is a one woman show in which the character is giving a lecture on how to make crossword puzzles, but while she's doing it, figures out a major problem of her own in her life, in her past, through the way that she's constructing the puzzle and making the clues. That's a play that only she can write. Uh, and it's one of the reasons it's so yeah. good. She knows that process so well, but she also, as a writer, understands character and the arc of a play and how discoveries happen and all that stuff. Yeah, there's something to be said. I mean, I, you know, my 
going to the theater is like so fun, whether you go to theater or movie or, you know, it's um, going through that process and like being a to step away for two hours or whatever that time frame is and uh, go on that ride of, you know, someone else's uh, kind of adventure and everything else like that. Is there anything that for you that you kind of, um, what the next kind of step is for you or something that you like a passion project, a real big passion project that you're looking at? Yeah. Um, there's a, <laughs> there's a play that I, I wrote a version of this play, uh, when I was in grad school, uh, almost 40 years ago. Um, uh, I wanted to write a play about, again, I said, I'm in a, my wife is biracial and been in this interracial relationship for more than 40 years. Um, and I wanted to write a play about that, about what it's like for the people involved in a relationship like that. And my question is like, what's going to make the stakes of the play really, really high? Uh, and I said, oh, I'm going to set it on April 4th, 1968. I'm going to set it on the day that Martin Luther King is assassinated um, because that is going to help all the issues in the play um, rise to the surface. So. <laughs> I'm still trying to write that play. Like I wrote a version of it when I was in grad school. It was my thesis play. It wasn't very good. Uh, I tried rewriting it in the nineties, still didn't quite get it. Uh, and I think I have a lead on how to do it now. Um, so it's this weird place that I'm sort of torn that, you know, I'm, I'm getting asked to write specific plays and I, you know, in the case of Gloucester and this play about Miss Havisham, getting commissions to write plays. And because they're commissions, like these plays are going to get produced. They're not going to sit in my hard drive. Um, so I, I'm going to devote my energy to that. So then there's a the question of like, yeah, so how much time do I invest in the passion projects that may or may not ever get produced? Um, but another friend in a playwriting group said, but these other plays, these commissions, those are the pieces that are going to get people to look at your passion projects and produce them. So we'll see. Yeah, that makes sense. I thought you were going to say bring back the invasion of the pie people, but oh that would be great <laughs> <laughs> ended up having the, i called the guy who played the lead in it uh, was a great actor and teacher davis robinson uh and at one point i when i was teaching high school one of my students wanted to get into the college that he was teaching in so i called him on the phone and i just knew his name was davis robinson i wasn't sure it was the same guy so we had the whole conversation about the student and how much i thought you know she would really flourish under his his work and i said i just want to double check you were the same davis robinson from invasion of the pie people he said oh my god <laughs> <laughs> i still think that, i still think it's a place for it i'm telling you right now you know we we're, were sending emails back and forth and i saw one of the bottom of the emails you mentioned uh, Blackburn, but the um, mm -hmm. the Blizzard of '78. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, one of the stories that I did not hear while I was writing it, um, I think a week or so into the run, I got an email from somebody who said, "Oh, I I'm one of the founders of the modern Blackburn Tavern, um, and in fact, the tavern that the theater was founded in, because there there was the original, and then it moved and it closed, and on all this stuff." But he was there, he said, until his partners screwed everything up and the business closed. Um, but he said the scariest thing that ever happened to him in the Blackburn was during the blizzard of 78, there was a, a ship off the, Gloucester, off the coast of Gloucester that was in trouble. And the Coast Guard went out to try to rescue and the Coast Guard boat was in trouble. So the captain of the, the can-do uh, went from bar to bar trying to get people to volunteer to get into his boat, the can-do, and to go out after and try to rescue them. 
Uh, and he got a few people. Uh, the other two ships were fine. The Kandu went down and everybody drowned. But he said, oh, wow. just, uh, seeing this guy so desperate, like trying to get people off the bar stools to get onto his boat and go out and rescue folks. And then listening to the distress calls later on. Mm. He said it was his scariest experience in Gloucester. Now, if you were to write that based on what you just heard, that information, would you have been, would you have like add that into the play or would you have made it something into that or? I don't know. The play ended up being so comic for the most part. Um, I mean, there are plenty of scary stories. Uh, and, and Gloucester, you know, they, the goal was that they really wanted the mix of scary, spooky with funny. Uh, and then the director came in with a, a bunch of four really funny actors and a very creatively funny director and the play went more in a comic direction than i expected so okay. which is fine because the audience then had a, had a blast and there were still a few moments that were scary in it that were you know for anybody who wanted that um but it would be interesting it would be a really different tone to yeah to include something like that uh okay, so it's interesting and i know that uh i'm sure there were some people in the audience who were like but i really wanted like more of the because there have been a lot of tragedies in Gloucester. I mean, uh, oh, yeah. so many folks over the generations, over you know centuries lost at sea, uh, and the people who were left behind. And there, there's a little bit of that in the play, but the focus isn't on the tragedy of it. Um, like there's a whole section in the middle of the play about the Dogtown area of Gloucester, which was you know settled in the 17th century. And by the 18th century, it was thinning out. And by the 19th century, it was pretty much abandoned. Uh, but at a certain point, it was the, the legend is it was just the widows of people who had been killed in the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, or had gone down as part of the, the fishing business, um, which is, is not necessarily how it got its name. It was the widows and the dogs. And then when the, when the widows died, it was just the dogs. Probably wasn't actually why it was called Dogtown, um, but that's the, the legend anyway. So there's a lot of that sorrow uh, in the town. Uh, and then there was a, you know, in the eighties, there was a murder in Dogtown. Um, so there's a lot of, a lot of dark places that came up in the research, but I think they really wanted the audience to have joy and a sense of fun. Uh, yeah. uh I know the, <laughs> the first, uh, the designer run when all the designers come in, lighting designer, costume designer to make sure that, you know, what they're planning is going to work, got to the end of it. And Bryn Boyce, the director, went over to Rebecca Bradshaw, the artistic director of the company, and said, is what I'm doing with this play too stupid? <laughs> and, the, and the artistic director said, no, it's just the right kind of stupid. It's just the kind of stupid we need. <laughs> uh, so I think that that was the sense of like something that's going to be really engaging, entertaining, and fun to close the season and to commemorate the 400 plus years. So speaking of the, the, the dog town, I know you just touched a little bit on it. Um, I was prior to kind of, you know, jumping on and doing some research to, on it. And um, some of the, those witches involved and um, yeah. it like some of it, some of it kind of goes back to like pre-American, uh, the Revolutionary War and, mm -hmm. you know, post that in the 1812 after that war. And yeah. um, tell us, tell the listeners and everything else a little about kind of that area and, Sure. The, um, I mean, what the first, it's not Dogtown yet, but the first piece in the play takes place during, it's in 1692, so it's while the Salem witch trials are going on. So there's 
the play sort of like grounds that idea of this movie witchcraft talked about at some point uh they make references to like weird stuff's going on here and these like seemingly semi-invisible soldiers that are like <laughs> attacking this family uh and are they witches what are they uh and then it's very interesting the way that uh witchcraft got viewed in gloucester the like there was one really interesting charismatic witch, uh, Thomasine Younger, Tammy Younger, uh, who was known as the Queen of the Dogtown Witches, who was an amazing character with great stories. But it really seems like she was someone who was like, oh, I got called a witch. Oh, I can make use of that. Yeah, mm. People will be afraid of me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so uh, a lot of the, the anecdotes that have come down about her are really about ways that she manipulated people and got what she wanted. Um, and one of the the biggest laughs in the play, which is great because it's not something I wrote, it's a direct quote from Roger Babson, who was a Gloucesterite, founded Babson College, part of a, a family that's been in Gloucester for generations and generations. Uh, but he said, like people like Tammy, they were basically entrepreneurs um, that they saw opportunities, they figured out ways to get other people to do what they wanted them to do. Uh, and, and his quote ends with, you know, today they'd be our political leaders. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was reading that. Some, I was, it was funny. I, I came across this article and it was actually a, um, a girl in high school that wrote the article for their, I think their yeah, high school yeah, paper. Right. Yeah. And pulled that quote in and, and, and kind of said this, like what you're, you're saying, like, it, yeah. it's amazing, you know? And, and then one of the interesting things that like I pretty much set like, oh, I know what I'm going to say about Tammy Younger. I know how the play is going to handle her. And then one day I was in the archives at the Cape Ann Museum looking through some old paperwork and newspaper articles and found this article from, I think, like 50 or 60 years after Tammy died. But it related what happened at her wake um, that she the coffin was. Like there was, first of all, there was one story about the, the guy who made the coffin. His kids were convinced it was haunted, told him like, you can't leave it, can't leave it in the house. You have to take it back out to the shop, um, which he did in the middle of a rainstorm. But at her wake, the neighbors gathered around and they're like, are we really rid of her? Is she really gone? Uh, I don't really know. And they said, well, let's, let's wait till midnight. If we can get to the time the clock strikes 12 and Tammy's still gone, then we know we're safe. And as the clock was striking, they started to hear noises in the walls. And the noises got louder and louder and they're like, Tammy, is that you? What do we do? What do we do? And then suddenly there's like animal screaming and howling and a bunch of feral cats dropped out of the chimney into the fireplace and scattered and also scattered all the mourners at the wake. Uh, so is that, was that Tammy? <laughs> was that a weird coincidence? Are those her familiars that are come to, you know, one last gasp? Um, but it's probably the thing that cemented her reputation. Uh, so there's Tammy as one of the key witches, a character who had the wildest story and maybe the most terrifying story, this woman, Margaret Wesson, who some sources say lived in Dogtown. Some say she lived closer to the harbor on Prospect Street. But uh, during, uh, I think it was King William's War, one of the wars, or King George's War, one of the wars uh, between the colonial French and the colonial British, um, there were three soldiers that thought Peg Wesson was really good at telling fortunes. So the night before they were being shipped off to what's now Canada to the to the battles against the French, they decided they were probably drunk, going to go and get Peg to tell their fortunes. So Peg demanded payment up front. So they're like, okay, well, uh, uh, what are we going to do? Oh, well, we've got this, uh, we've got this silver coin we can give you. So they gave her a silver coin and she said, oh, 
and bent the coin. He said, this is lead, get out of here. And they're like, but we want our fortunes. Okay, I'll tell you your fortunes. Uh, I'm gonna curse you. Uh, my, my curse is upon you for this and I curse you on your voyage to Lewisburg. And in the play, it's, I curse you in the sea, I curse you on the land and I curse you in the sky. So anyway, the guys go off the next day, they leave. They go off the next day to Lewisburg. Um, and when they're on the boat, uh, at one point, they they noticed a crow. Peg Wesson was known to transform himself into a crow and fly around the town, and she would steal people's grain, etc. And they sort of mocked her for that while they were as she's kicking them out of their out of her house. They noticed there's a crow flying overhead, and they're like, "It, it can't be her, right? I mean, we're a thousand miles away from Gloucester. There's no way it's her." So they say, "Well, let's just get back to work." And they're they're pulling on a line to to furl up one of the sails. And the line catches the foot of one of the guys and tosses him overboard. And he almost drowns. They managed to bring him back on ship, but they're like, I was cursed in the sky. A uh, few days later, uh, they are now on land and they're moving a cannon uh, through some mud and they can't get it to move and can't get it to move. And one of them says, well, I'm gonna, you keep pulling it. I'm going to get behind and push. As they're pushing, a crow lands on the cannon. Huh. That's it. That's West. And I, you know, get out of here. And they start battering after the crow with a hat. Uh, and as they begin to do it, the cannon slips in the mud. The mud crushes the arm of the guy who is trying to get rid of it, cursed on the land. The guy says he survives it, but he loses his arm. Uh, a little while later, the two guys who have survived so far, who are not injured, they're out hunting one afternoon because they're all out of food. It's a siege, they don't have supplies. So they decided to go off hunting. And as they're hunting, they see a crow flying overhead and they're like, that, that's it. Like, we're going to shoot her. We're going to shoot this crow out of the sky. So the first guy is a great shot, shoots her, shoots the crow through the heart. Crow drops to the ground gets up and starts flying around again. And they're like, you shot her through the heart. How can that happen? The other guy shoots, shoots her through the wing, flaps to the ground, gets back up and starts flying around again. Uh, and they can't really figure out what to do. And one of them realizes, Oh, this isn't really a crow. This is a witch. The only way to take care of a witch is with a silver bullet. Well, they don't have silver bullets, but they have silver buttons. So pulls a silver button off the uniform, puts it in the musket, shoots it, uh, only hits her in the leg, uh, but the crow flies off and is gone. They're not bothered again. The same day, back in Gloucester, uh, people go by the house of Peg Wesson and she's lying in her backyard complaining of a broken leg. So they call the doctor, the doctor comes over to examine, he sees that there's something there, he pulls out a silver button. The guys get back from Lewisburg and the, the one who had shot the crow goes to examine it and discovers it's the same button that he shot. Oh, wow. A thousand miles away. Uh, and Peg Wesson, that's the thing that does her and she dies at that point. So there's some stories that are like, whoa. Hey. <laughs> a lot of detail and a lot of, uh, unexplainable stuff i think that's what makes it so great to write about in this area because you have all the legends the history yeah. you can go on off in a lot of different different directions with that yeah yeah absolutely yeah and there were there's so many great stories that you know <laughs> if it had been a sequence of four plays there would have been even more but it was really a matter of focusing on the the dog town the characters in Dogtown, including the witches um the ghost army that showed up in 1692 and then stories about the sea serpent uh, became the three focal points for it. In Dogtown now was, it was it's a really area, but it, it was abandoned, right? It's it just like, how what's the size of this area? And 
Oh man, I don't know in acres. It's pretty big though. I've hiked it a couple of times uh, as part of the research for it. Um, and it's very easy to get lost in because the trails are not that well marked. And all that's really left of from all the folks that live there are their cellar holes with markers. And yeah, I was going to ask you. Yeah, yeah you like, oh, here's cellar hole number 12. This is where this so-and-so lived. Um, but I know that having gone there when I was in high school, 40 something years ago, uh, there were specific places that I remember that were really hard to find. Um, like I wanted to get to, we did find Peter's pulpit, which is this enormous, enormous rock that uh, I guess you can get up the top of the pulpit. There's a formation called Whale's Jaw um, that when I first went up there, it was one of the first places that we found. And it was just this amazing rock, huge rock that looks like the jaw of a whale that's open. Um, and part of the rock cracked in the 80s because somebody built a fire underneath it and the rock superheated. But I know we, we looked everywhere for that, looked at every map. It's like, it's this way, according mm. to this, it's that trail. No, it's that trail and could never find it. Mm. And then there's a whole other section uh, for Babson's boulders. Roger Babson, one of the things that he did during the depression, um, he was concerned, first of all, that Dogtown had a bad reputation, uh, but he was also thought like there are so many work, workers who don't have anything to do. They have no job. They have no income. I'm going to hire them to carve inspirational sayings in the boulders uh, in Dogtown so that it'll become a place that isn't like mysterious and scary, but people can go to for inspiration. So there's a whole long trail that, that you can you can walk and you keep finding these boulders that'll have inspirational sayings like, you know, prosperity follows service. Uh, yeah, yeah. Help, help mother. <laughs> industry, you know, so uh -huh. great. There's just these wild things. Yeah. Our favorite one is one of them is just get a job. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> great advice during the depression. Yeah, get a job. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I see you're currently on stage in Colorado and California. Yeah, yeah. The That adaptation of Sleepy Hollow that I wrote last year. Um, just through word of mouth, which was amazing to me. I didn't submit the play to those theaters. They heard about it. Um, and they, yeah, they both opened on Friday night, uh, running until beginning of November. Um, yeah, so that, that's a, it's great. It's wonderful when your plays can have a life beyond you. <laughs> like those stories are being told uh, and you're not even there. You're not part of the process. It's just they're taking it and running with it. Is this the first time that's, that's happened with some of your plays or has this happened in the past? Um, this is the first time it's happened with this play, um, or the play that, that play that I talked about earlier, the, the two characters, the teacher and the student, um, breaking the Shakespeare code called that's had, I think it's about to up to 12 productions now, uh, maybe four or five of which I've seen, um, if they've been close enough or the first time it was done near Chicago, it was like, I'm, I'm going to go see this. I'm just going to go out to Chicago and see this play. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah that's a weekend that I had to work. So I flew out on Saturday afternoon, came back on Sunday morning. <laughs> Excuse to go make a trip somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. What is, what's the process on that? Like if someone, when these are done on stage, like is the process that they have to reach out to John? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I, there's this great website called the new play exchange uh, where playwrights it's, it's very cheap to join it's like 10 or 12 bucks a year and you can upload your plays uh create descriptions have keywords and cast sizes so theaters can do searches 
So I've gotten some productions as a result of that. Uh, but otherwise, it's uh, like the place that in California, I had never heard of the theater before. And they contacted me out of the blue and said, We're, we've heard about this play uh, through a friend of a friend of a friend. Uh, sounds like something we might want to do. Can you send us a copy? So I sent it and immediately they were like, yeah, we're going to do this in the fall. Um, the place in Colorado, they had done a short play of mine in like 2015 or 2016. Uh, and so I was friends with the artistic director on Facebook and I posted about the opening of the play last year and he said, oh, can I take a look at that play? Um, so I sent it to him uh, and so that's, they're now producing that. And he's already said he thinks he might want to revive it next year uh, and do it again, like two autumns in a row. It'd be great. So you gonna, are you going to be back next year at Gloucester? Uh, I would love to. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to put that bug in anyone's ear, yeah. It's well, a, that's what we're doing right now. <laughs> it's, a, it's a wonderful theater to work in. Uh, you know, I've had good experiences and bad experiences uh, working in theaters with directors, with producers, et cetera. And it was, uh, it was just, except for the... 100 mile round trip to get to rehearsal. It was an amazing and ideal experience. Uh, great people to work with. And I think they they were very happy with the result. I know that the show did very well in terms of ticket sales. I think it was their, uh, their best selling September show in a few years. Um, and uh, theaters are struggling to come back post pandemic. Uh, yeah. Theaters at best are like two thirds to three quarters of what their audience sizes were before the pandemic. So um, yeah, I would be happy to help Gloucester build back their audience anyway. <laughs> I can. Um, yeah, I mean, but would they bring back tall tales from Blackburn Tavern? Would they bring that back next year? Or do they just not? Is that something they don't? You know, they won't repeat. Uh, I don't know. I. Um, I think it would be challenging just because they'd have to, I mean, they'd have to redo everything. The set has been taken apart. And I got you. All of that stuff. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Or I don't know if it's something they would do like as a, you know, not for a full month long run, but, you know, special occasion thing, run it for a week. Uh, <laughs> I did say, well, we'll do this again for the 450th, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> so if anyone wanted to see, I mean, do, do we have any plans for Tall's Tales? Or is it going to be playing anywhere else? Not that I know of. Uh, it's it's very, very specific. Um, so I think the um, the route that I might take with it is to take sections of it, uh, like the the Peg Wesson story, you know, the the three guys who got cursed. That could be a little one act play that could be done mm. separately. It might be something because it involves a lot of characters and could involve puppetry. Schools might want to do it. Um, so at some point, when I have time uh, and I'm not working on another commission immediately. Uh, I definitely plan to sit down and say, okay, so how how can pieces of this continue to live? Because uh, they're they're a lot of fun for actors. They're a lot of fun for the audience as well. Yeah, that's cool. What is the um, uh, talk about a little bit of the, the Gloucester Sea Serpent and kind of the his, the history behind that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, what's interesting to me is how far back it goes. Uh, uh, Joseph Nicolar was a Penobscot historian, uh, and also he was the the indigenous representative to the Maine legislature. Um, he told the story of the the first man, Close uh, Kerba, uh, who was out rowing his canoe one day uh, in the Gulf of Maine, and suddenly saw a serpent. Um, and the serpent, he, he was curious, so he paddled toward the serpent. The serpent was clearly going to come and attack him. Uh, 
when suddenly, just as he thought he was about to be attacked, uh, Mei Mei the woodpecker appeared and said, shoot your arrows. Uh, so he shot his arrows, arrows all bounced off the serpent. Uh, and then Mei Mei said, no, here at the tail. So he shot his arrows at the tail of the serpent, the serpent disappeared. And then later a Penobscot carver carved, you can still see it on a rock that goes into the Kennebec River, the serpent with an arrowhead tail. Um, so the stories have been around for a super long time. Um, the bulk of the sightings, you know, there were dozens of them that happened in 1817, in the summer of 1817, starting with Susan and Amos Story, who, you know, looking out at Ten Pound Island, there's something out there. It looks like a tree trunk. It's moving. Uh, it's going into the water. Uh, and it got to be so well known that there was a group in Boston, the Linnaean Society, this group of very educated men who decided they would just, they wanted to name everything in the known world, and especially in the new world, in America, our new nation, our new scientists, we're going to discover what this thing really is after all these sightings and give it a name, and tried to do so and, and failed. <laughs> they <couldn't laughs> ended up with... Uh, Somebody thought they found a bait, the serpent's baby. It ended up being just a snake. Uh, uh, so they were sort of embarrassed by all that. Uh, but there, were, there have been sightings. The most recent sightings were in 1997. I didn't see any records after that of sightings in the Gloucester area. Um, but they're, they've been pretty regular. Uh, and you know, there are books that are written about you know, the sequences of them. Uh, there's never been except for that original indigenous tale from the Penobscot historian, there's never been any that seems particularly dangerous. Like the serpent never seems to want to attack. Uh, the serpent is always curious about, you know, what are these creatures in this boat? What, you know, who are these people looking at us? Uh, or looking at me. Um, so for me, that was really interesting, especially trying to get the perspective of the serpent, you know, uh, mm who's just curious about things that it doesn't understand and doesn't want to destroy them, doesn't want to explain them, but like, oh, look at that, people in a boat, wow. <laughs> and I'm just going to sail off and do my thing now. Um, and that kind of became the the touchstone at the end of the play. Uh, there's this one guy, uh, Charles Bungay, who was fishing one day, uh, In he's the guy in 1997. Uh, and he just described that, you know, the thing just sort of looked at him for a while. Uh, and just seemed to be curious and then just turned around and went under the water and off it went. Um, so the sightings have never really been, you know, it's not like this terrifying dragon flame breathing thing that, that seems dangerous. It's always just this really mysterious thing that's out there. Uh, yeah. I never so, heard of that. I never heard that story before. No, I haven't either. I Googled yeah. it. Got kind of like yeah, that lost monster. There's a statue out in front of the Cape Ann Museum of Cassie the Sea Serpent. There's a, uh, the story got to be so popular that in the 1800s, somebody wrote a polka, the sea serpent polka. That's <laughs> too. Uh, yeah, it was quite a thing. In the in 1817, in particular, was the year that it just sort of like dozens and yeah. dozens of people saw this thing. Yeah, it's like Loch Ness. Looks like the Loch Ness monster, like you're saying, Brett. You know, exactly. it's, you, whatever they saw, it just transformed to something bigger. Well, maybe yeah. they did see something serpent. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And there have been all kinds of, uh, like the theories that I read about what it was, uh, even like this theory that it was actually some small creature that got caught in nets, but the nets had casks like barrels um, as flotation devices. So the humps of the serpent were actually basically like early ocean pollution uh, was what it was. And that's what people were seeing. So 
Yeah, it's never been explained <laughs> uh, satisfactorily in a way that everybody will go along with. There's never been any true physical evidence of what it was, that, as least in all the sources that I looked at. Um, so it is this legend and, uh, you know, the, the bit in the play becomes that the bartender doesn't want to tell this story because, you know, maybe it's like Beetlejuice. You talk about it, it comes back. Uh, so uh, she's concerned that that's going to happen. And then like all your act is you're going to go off and do your thing. And we Gloucesterites are stuck with this now. You know? Right, right. The first Godzilla. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I see that um, I was looking on your site. You had won an, uh, an award for excellence in playwriting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 2022. Uh, won a couple of awards for that play that I... Uh, talked about sort of loosely based on one of my daughter's experiences. Um, there's an award that's given every year, the Judith Royer Award. It's given by the Kennedy Center in DC in conjunction with the Association for Theater and Higher Education. Uh, and because of that association, it's just folks who are associated with a institution of higher learning that can enter. Uh, so I entered and, you know, out of the blue got this very shocking email that I had won the Judith Royer Award. Um, and then you know, I looked at other people who had won it and I was like, wow, I'm very impressed with this award. <laughs> uh, and then the more I learned about Judith Royer, uh, that was also amazing. And then met some people who had studied with her. Uh, she's a, a professor emeritus uh, at a university in California. Um, so yeah, so, and that was a kind of an amazing experience to go out to the conference last summer in Detroit for the association and receive the award and make a speech and, suddenly be thought of as an expert on plays. So I, they asked me if I would be the person responding to all the short play performances and giving feedback in public and all that stuff. So, um, but it was good. It was, a, it was a great experience. It was an amazing honor to get the award. Um, and, a, you know, especially in the Kennedy thing too, you know, that, that's, yeah. that's yeah. Yeah. I, I, the downside, it used to be that there was a, uh, a ceremony, I think, as part of the Kennedy Center's College Theater Festival. They, so it used to be presented in D.C. also at the Kennedy Center. Uh, so I was like, oh, I'm going to get to go to the Kennedy Center? <laughs> yeah. But they don't do that. I think that stopped because of the pandemic and it hasn't started. Uh -huh. but, <laughs> but I had Detroit, you know. <laughs> there you go. So what, what are your uh, what's your plans for the future? Do you have any, uh, any ultimate goals you'd like to do? Um, something you know, like a passion project you'd like to tackle? Yeah, I think, um, well, the, the, I'm really interested in getting back to work on the piece uh, about the interracial relationship on the day that King was assassinated. I'm also uh, trying to work, doing everything that I can to get this play that won that award uh, from the Kennedy Center to get it produced. Again, it's, a, it's three actors, one room, two acts, you know, very easy to produce. Um, it's, it's sort of a dark play, uh, but it's hopeful. There's a lot of comedy in it. Um, so I would think that at some point somebody's going to do something with it, but it seems uh, <laughs> gotten close a number of times, uh, but it hasn't made it on stage yet. So a lot of my energy for the last year or so has been trying to figure out effective ways to market that play to a theater uh, and get it out there. Other than that, um, you know, as I said, I taught, ran a high school theater program for 31 years and for the most part was sort of, I had to take a break from writing because I could, you know, I could write for two months in the summer, but that was it. So my plan is basically to see how far and how well this train I am currently on 
keeps going uh, and continue to make connections. Uh, it's been great to have two productions two years in a row in the Boston area. Um, and because I'm, I'm really enjoying being part of the, the Boston theater scene. I have another workshop production of another new play coming up in Boston in June. Can't talk too much about it yet because it hasn't been officially announced. But uh, so so getting those things done and getting them done close to home uh, is what I'd like to do more of. What are the ways um, you mentioned a website that you guys you can share some of you, like your script and, and so to get it out there? What are other ways? Obviously, the word of mouth has been huge for you as well. Um, are there any other like um, roads that you can take to kind of to get that out there? Yeah, um, I mean, I've been uh, for about 10 years, been a member of a group called the Playwrights Marketing Binge. Uh, which initially has been about a group of playwrights, now more than a thousand, sharing production opportunities. Like if you find out a theater is looking for a specific kind of play, post it in the group. You know, people who have that kind of play will be able to submit it, uh, which has been great. It's, it's an incredibly generous group because, you know, on one level, we're all, you know, there are a limited number of spots. So <laughs> uh, there are some people who will not share those opportunities, but by and large, this group is a group of people who are like, I hope somebody has success there. This is what they're looking for. Um, so that's been one route to get work out there. Um, recently, both that group and also personally been trying to focus more on networking uh, and getting to know people and finding ways to, you know, the the old like a rising tide raises all rises all boats, uh, like do as much as I can for for playwrights in general and theater in general um, for the good of all of us. And then if I go along in that journey, too, that's great as well. So, yeah, that's sort of my my current route is to try to continue to network, stay in touch with people, uh, try to see as much work by people that I think would be interesting to work with. Um, so, yeah, it's that's great. Part is, yeah, part of what I do is the writing, and then, you know, I, I try to write for two hours a day, but then I try to spend at least some time every day doing all that other stuff. Like, how do I get this work out there? How do I get the work seen? Uh, how do I connect with people who I think might be beneficial to work with? Right. right. So if they want to follow. Your... Yeah, I was just going to. Okay, Brighton, you can you can do his website. That's what I was just going to. Yeah. Uh, so I mentioned John before we got started. I mentioned John J O H N. Um, Minigan, M-I-N-I-G-A-N um, at, at uh, not, what is it? I'm sorry, I don't have it. Yeah, it, it's just johnminigan.com. Um, yeah, that's right. Okay. The website, yep. yeah. And folks can get in touch with me. There's a there's an email link on that site that they can send me an email directly if they're interested in learning more about my stuff. Um, there's also a link there uh, to the New Play Exchange, to my page there. That's a, that you have to be a member to be able to read and download scripts. Um, but, yeah, the, the website is a great way to see more about what I've been working on or to get in touch with me. Yeah. Well, you see, John, when Bright tries to, try to take over the podcast, he screws up your, you know, your webpage. I, I, I fumbled. I didn't do it the first time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, 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 no, he, was, he screwed it up. So people. Yeah, you know, I was thinking know. like an email. And then I, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. We're trying to. So just so you know, that's why he can't take over the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> it would be easy to see that you guys are brothers, even if they know you were brothers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, but, you know, obviously we'll share it, you know, anything you want to, as part of the, the release of this episode, any artwork or anything else, we'll obviously share your, your uh, website, even though my brother can't get it right, we'll get it right on there. <laughs> I'll get it right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so quick question on, on terms of, uh, 
Are you uh, are you a horror movie fan? Are you uh, like a Halloween fan? I mean, since we're in that tis the season. Yeah, yeah, we're in that season. Uh, it's interesting because the these two pieces that I've done the last year and a half uh, have both been, you know, scary tales from Gloucester, but handled in a comic way and Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And I've never been a guy who's thought about like, oh, I really, really want to get into horror and I really want to get it, you know. Right. And then I find myself... This, this actor that I've worked with a number of times, I mentioned before, Paul Melendi, who was in, I, I wrote The Legend of Sleepy Hollow for him. Uh, uh, previous play I had done in Boston, Noir Hamlet, I wrote specifically for him. Uh, and then he was involved in The Gloucester Show, and he and I are now talking about, like, what's the next thing? And we've got two projects that we've talked about, uh, and then one that I am thinking about for after those two, and they're all horror-related. Uh, mm surprising to me uh there's a vaguely edgar Allan poe related thing um uh, there i just started watching uh the netflix series fall of the house of usher today uh yeah, yeah. so that's a drop right that just yeah, came yeah. out yeah yeah and it's uh, it's pretty pretty spooky uh <laughs> um and then either i mean i'm thinking probably frankenstein like uh, oh, oh really yeah, yeah. my brother's a huge frankenstein fan Joe. i love those i love those old monster movies i think they, they, they oh, yeah. did them so much better back then than they do now yeah yeah and i think the part of that came, again came from a suggestion from him that like what if we did a silent play uh he was like what are you talking about a silent play it's like what if we told a story and there were no words uh and so mm. ever since he mentioned that like a year and a half ago i've been like what would the story be and then I started to think like, oh, uh, silent movies. Uh, and he said, yeah, like a silent movie, but with a live musician there. I said, oh, oh. Like, so oh. Like, a Frankenstein that has, you know, uh, ideally like a pipe organ sound, like a probably synthesizer, but you know, pipe organ and then not a solo show. The, the Poe thing, if we do it is probably a solo show. And then there's a, there's a Charles Dickens holiday horror idea uh for down the road at some point um any so what are some of your all-time classics any uh, any movies like we were talking about halloween or the, the, the michael myers movies yeah oh yeah 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 no i'm uh i'm i'm really into noir, film noir uh i'm a big fan of you know lonely place casablanca maltese falcon you know all of those those are i love that era and i love screwball comedies too um, yeah Harry Grant, Catherine Hepburn, Tracy and Hepburn, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, I've always been a big fan of those. Um, and I think the, like the, the play noir Hamlet that I uh, wrote for Paul, because uh, he suggested we, the first time we worked together was on a 10 minute comedy. It was a play that I wrote because two different theaters had a request. One wanted film noir style plays and one wanted superhero plays. I was like, well, I don't want to write two plays. There's uh, mm. a superhero no oh, noir man. Okay, great. A superhero who can turn any moment into film noir, uh, and ran with that, and it became a. It's now my most produced ten minute play, uh, and he was in a production of it in Boston in ten years ago, almost twenty fourteen, and in the middle of it, he said, "Turn this into a full length play because I want to play this character." Oh, I couldn't think about how to do it, but it's what led me to think like, oh, but. You know, Hamlet's a detective story, you know, dad's dead, somebody killed him, probably the uncle, Hamlet's got to figure it out. Um, I said that, I could do that. So let's rewrite Hamlet, it's 1949, Los Angeles. Uh, Hamlet takes over the Elsinore Detective Agency. Uh, 
and and ran with that. So uh, yeah, I'm I'm really into sort of that era and that style. Where are you where are you next? You anywhere locally next coming up, or are you? Uh... Um, I've got this this thing I can't talk about yet. Okay, uh, this thing happening in June uh, uh, in Boston that'll be it's a number of new plays, um, but I'll have a piece that's that's part of that. And I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure what the delay is, uh, but they I don't know by the time the podcast comes out, probably it'll be possible to announce it. Um, but that's a that's a newer contemporary play of mine set with a modern setting. Do you have a favorite play of yours that you? Uh... Ooh, probably my favorite play of my own. I would I would have to say it's this play that I've been three character play I've been trying to get produced. It's called Queen of Sad Mischance, uh, and it, it's definitely the play that I've worked hardest at. Uh, it it's both comic and dark, and it you know involves a lot of issues but it's not an issue play it's really a play about three three characters who are all joined together in a in a struggle um so i think that's probably my favorite of my plays uh which is why i'm, I'm so eager to try get it on stage somehow at some point what what are some of your plays outside i mean favorite plays outside of that um that aren't your own day um i'm a huge fan of uh, this play indecent by paula vogel uh I just think it's it's one of the best contemporary plays I've seen in a very very long time, uh, and it's it's amazing. It's a play about a play uh, called the God of Vengeance uh, that was uh, performed in Yiddish in Europe uh, in the years before the Second World War, uh, and it's uh, revolutionary because it has the first uh, same sex kiss. Uh, these two women are in love in the play, and to think about the fact that this was a hit in Europe you know, in the early part of the 20th century. Um, and then it came to America, got translated into English and got shut down for indecency immediately. Um, but it's the story about the people who were involved in the creating of that play and the play and and what their arcs were. And it just, it's got everything. Like it's, it's funny, it's heartbreaking. It's uh, an ensemble piece. It has live music and dance. And, you know, it's just, it's extraordinary. Um, great storytelling thoroughly completely captivating uh from beginning to end uh saw it in new york um it was quite a weekend saw that and saw hamilton were the two oh. <laughs> we saw that weekend so two amazing pieces of theater um i'm a huge i'm not generally a big musical fan but i really love the musical ragtime i think that's amazing just like the scope of american history told through three groups of people uh sort of a, a wasp family a black family uh or and, and a jewish family and the way that their three arcs sort of move together over the course of history it's yeah that's a that's an amazing one yeah when i started when i started doing that like theater before like even playwrights i, I didn't really know it until like when i started acting and i started in new york city mm -hmm. and like you you learn about the mammoths and the clifford odets yeah. and all those guys and mm -hmm. um it, it's it's amazing how like enjoying it is to read those you know um those plays and the dynamics of the characters and um mm -hmm. some things like that um so here we'll leave, we'll leave you with this question so um if there are two actors that you would want to perform in your thing out there and uh -huh. then is there a specific theater in the country that you would want one of your plays um your 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 shit to, to kind of perform at yeah. Um, 
I think be... <laughs> I'm, I'm hitting all the loaded questions. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just just keep in mind that we have a lot of like celebrities listen to this podcast. Right, right, right. So, <laughs> yeah. so there's a good chance that they may jump in on they want to, you know. <laughs> uh, We're gonna find someone to do your play by. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we want Brad Pitt. Listen, yeah. Speed dial. Uh, <laughs> wow, that's, that's boy. That's really hard. I don't really, I don't really think of it in terms of actors that way. Other than like, oh, I worked with that actor. I really want to work with that actor. Uh, yeah, sure. But there isn't like a a big name. I, having said that, I just watched uh, a clip, a Tiny Desk concert with Katrina Link, uh, who I saw in Indecent way back when, who was in the band's visit, um, and she's amazing. So yeah, it'd be incredible to work with her. But other, other you know, otherwise, yeah, uh, I don't think I do. And then theaters. Um, it's interesting because I've never like I've never been uh, the playwright with the Broadway dreams like I, I don't care couldn't care less about you know Broadway or not uh, having said that uh, and having worked with like had some readings in 2016 in New York uh, that involved some Broadway personnel that was very exciting um, it'd be great to work with people who are visible enough that an unknown playwright wouldn't matter because people would come and see the play because of the the actors or the director and then get connected to what the story is i think that would be whatever theater that happened to be in um that would that would be i guess my ideal uh if people discover the play because of the the personnel that are involved with it uh you're a humble man because i've worked with before yeah. so many of them I just i'm excited about working with them again yeah. yeah, you're a humble. That's guy. awesome. <laughs> As I said, I'm enjoying this train ride. That's <laughs> good. Yeah, no, that's the way to do it. Some people don't. They just go along with. It. They don't. They take it for granted. They don't realize what they, the experience of it, and then when it's over, yeah, they realize and, and what they course, missed. You know, the my my inbox is filled with far more rejections than acceptances still, and it, and it is always that way. You know, for it's kind of like this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Sorry, John. <laughs> so, John, is there anything we didn't tackle that you wanted to uh, share with any of the listeners? No, I think this was this was a great conversation. I really appreciate it. No, we appreciate you taking the time to come on and talk to us. Yeah. Listen, you know, if you want to, you know, I, I we have a three guys mug for you. Um, oh, so give you give me an address. We'll send it over to you. You know, oh, sure, maybe sure. you can not, um, not right now, but <laughs> you, you can email, yeah, you can email it to me. You know what okay, to do. We'll do. You know, maybe you can use that inspiration to do a play about the three guys. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, just you put a bug in your three. Yeah, it's yeah, three, like guys in a, yeah. three guys yeah. in a mug. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, three guys in a mug, and then maybe if you know, if you can realize that you know, I'm having writer's block. I can use these three idiots and say, hey. Uh, well. <laughs> 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 and, and, That's what I love and, about this is that it's <laughs> the three. You there's you and there's you. Oh, I see. <laughs> no, 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 I don't mean you. I mean, I meant there's another third person that's on by. And John, here's another thing, too. I don't act, right? I mean, I, I go on TV because I'm on the zoning board for my town, but huh? if you decide to bring back the pie people, I'll be happy to whip, <laughs> whip cream at someone's head. I can do that like no one's business. Matter so of fact, that, I can do it with such authority. <laughs> you'd, you'd be like, I'm hiring them. Yeah, method acting. tell you the, the climax. Method the acting? Oh, my God. The climax of that movie. Uh, so almost everybody has been turned into zombies uh, and my character discovers carbonation that's the way to to help people so uh <laughs> my character decides to carbonate a reservoir uh 
And as I'm carbonating the reservoir, which consists in reality of a box of kitty litter and a shovel, and I'm <laughs> shoveling into Walden Pond <laughs> as it's being filmed, uh, <laughs> and the zombies are coming out of the woods, and no, it's somebody else who's doing the shoveling. Somebody else is doing the shoveling. Um, zombies come out of the woods, uh, and they walk into the water, and it's been carbonated, and suddenly they're okay, and I, like the the crisis is over. <laughs> uh, this was filmed the day after Thanksgiving. Uh, Oh, in Walden Pond, there was ice on the top of the water. The final moment in that sequence is me surfacing from under the water with a bullhorn <laughs> oh. saying, this is the public water supply, everybody out of the reservoir. <laughs> uh, they had to I had to break up the ice for me to go under. <laughs> My God. And then come back up. Oh, so, the liability on that. Film, film business. You know? <laughs> yeah. As a playwright, I never have to do that. Oh my god! I know that person who stole all that camera. I'm he has no you, idea that, where he's that could have been your like your your road to the Academy Award. <laughs> I mean, like <laughs> yeah. Oh, actually, one of those things on Mystery Science Theater with the three guys over there climbing. Oh yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, John, we really appreciate you taking yeah. the time. I know it's getting late, and we do appreciate you taking the time. You just got back from traveling, sure. so you've been great we really appreciate yeah, it this has been a fantastic conversation i really appreciate uh the questions the insights the humor uh so yeah great great stuff yeah stick on right after this and we'll just chat real quick and then um i uh, just want to thank everyone again uh, for joining us on the, this latest episode of the three guys podcast and i'm not going to mess it up johnminigan.com j-o-h-n-m-i-n-i-g-a-n.com um and we will see you on the next episode